Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. Well, yeah. Well, good morning. It's been a few weeks since I've been able to lead discussion for our group, and I've missed it. So I'm really excited to do this today. As I'm sure you guys remember, we're in a series right now called Why We Do What We Do, and we're just talking about all the things that come with Christianity. Because, I mean, let's face it, it's kind of weird. We do weird stuff, you know? As I was uh, discussing just the whole idea of this sermon series with our content team— we were thinking about what would be helpful for us to discuss as kind of this budding church plant, you know, and we were talking about who's here and who's listening and what questions are being asked. And we landed on this topic because uh, many of the people who have come or, or who have expressed interest in coming to Kindred Church haven't really had much experience in church before, particularly because, you know, we're LGBT affirming and we're, you know, more progressive in that way. So sometimes people come here who wouldn't have felt comfortable in church before, and they haven't experienced any of this stuff that sort of gets bundled in with the Christian church service or Christian spiritual practices and things like that. So we're just talking about them because they can be a little weird if you haven't, you know, looked at them before or seen them before. For others of us, I think the really good thing about talking about this stuff is that these spiritual acts and some of these traditions may have lost their appeal to us due to association with past experiences or belief systems. But either way, it just seemed like a good idea for us all to revisit all the stuff that we do and consider why it is that we do them and, and whether or not it's still helpful for us to do today. So, we talk about where these traditions come from, why we have them, and today we are continuing that train of thought by talking about baptism. Okay. Show of hands, who's been baptized? If you're comfortable sharing, sweet. Well, everybody's been baptized. Awesome. Looks like uh, we've been fulfilling the Great Commission, <laughs> baptizing everybody. But uh, that's a weird thing. Baptism. A lot of the things we do together in church have like non-church counterparts. You know, like we're familiar with enjoying live music, right? So, what we just did is worship, but it's not too different from like, you know, when you're out at the casino and someone's just kind of like, plucking along to songs, you know, you know, it's a very similar experience. Um, listening to a public speaker, like what's happening right now. I mean, everyone I'm sure has been to a conference at some point or, or been to a lecture from a professor or something like that. I'm no professor, but uh, it's, it has a, like a non-church world counterpart. But where else are we going to find a group of people quietly wading into a pool of water and dunking each other ceremonially? <laughs> you know, it's strange. It's very weird. And I love it. The, the things that we do as Christians, as spiritual practices, the rites, the sacraments, you know, baptism stands out as being particularly mystical and unique. And I believe that it's these unique and mystical experiences that really help us articulate what we mean when we talk about God, when we talk about spirituality, the soul, the source of all things, you know. When we talk about that stuff, I think baptism gives us a very unique glimpse into a way to see that. And for me, being someone who's like, you know, a mystical Christian in general, baptism has this like bizarre, beautiful allure to it of 
why the heck are we doing this very strange practice? And so we'll get a little bit into the history of like where it comes from and and why we do it and some of the different traditions in the Christian church and how it's done. But the thing that's really neat about mystical experiences and spiritual practices is the novelty of them, right? They're peculiar and novel on purpose because they're mile markers, you know, on the road to divinity, on the road to understanding God. These strange experiences like baptism or like communion or, you know, even going to church, singing worship songs, like they stand out as peculiar to the rest of our lives. And they're these signs, these signals that we are on the path toward divinity. And it's beautiful because it's strange. So, this tradition of baptism and just Christianity in general, the public practice of Christianity, has been around for a long, long time right? Thousands of years. And there's been a lot of opportunities for things to change in our traditions. But since the beginning of this particular movement of like spiritual people, of born-again people, of, of the people who follow the way of Jesus, we have baptized each other since the beginning. It's been a thing that we do. And it's super unique. And so, we'll start, like I said, by talking about just what baptism is and how it's performed and all that kind of stuff. Because, you know, if you've never seen one before or never uh, been baptized, which looks like everyone here has been, but I think it's just good for us to talk about all the different ways that baptism works. So, baptism, what is it? Um, This is the most broad definition and description that I could come up with. Okay, baptism is a sacred ritual that is unique to Christian faith traditions. Other religions don't typically practice baptism, wherein a convert will either be submerged underwater or have water poured or sprinkled on them by a priest, pastor, or other duly appointed agent, signifying their initiation into and acceptance into the Christian church. So, that's what it is. But let's talk about what happens during a baptism, okay? So, baptism can look a lot of different ways, depending on what Christian tradition you're experiencing. But the word baptize is a transliteration from a Greek word, which is baptisma, And it means to dip or to submerge something with a specific nod towards cleaning it, right? It's like when you wash your hands in water, you would say, I'm baptizing them. I'm baptismaing them. So, the idea is like bathing, right? My kids are old enough to draw their own baths and showers and stuff now, but when they were little, my wife Liz and I would say to each other, I'm going to give the kids a bath. I'm going to give the kids a shower. I'm going to give the kids a shower. I'm going to whatever which is essentially the same concept as baptizing someone. It's a, it's a bath, a cleansing, a washing. It's, I am baptizing you. I am washing you in the name of God, washing you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of different ideas in various denominations about what exactly happens when you're baptized, like what happens to your soul, what exactly gets washed off of you, or does it actually wash anything off of you at all? That's a big discussion, which we won't get super into, but we will talk about some of the differences. But just to complete the description of the baptism act, you know, in some traditions, like I mentioned, people are fully submerged underwater, while in others, they have some water poured on their head or have water sprinkled on their head or face. And typically, this act, like I mentioned, is performed by a priest or a pastor or somebody else who's been given the responsibility and authority to do it. And usually, a baptism is performed in the presence of other Christians in the community, whether that's the initiate's family or the local church, you know, congregation that meets together or the clergy. On rare occasions, there are times where people are baptized privately, just like with one baptizer and one baptizee. Take, for example, the in the New Testament, the story of Philip on the road with the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, he 
realizes who Jesus is, and Philip's like, well, let's baptize you. He's like, there's water right there, so why don't we just do it? So that does happen. But essentially, there's three different ways that Christians of various traditions perform the baptism act, okay? The first one is immersion. In immersion, the initiate or convert is fully submerged underwater by the baptizer, either once or thrice for triple immersion, while the baptizer speaks the Trinitarian formula, which is the, you know, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, when they do triple immersion, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's a lot, but that's a thing that happens. Sometimes it happens in churches, more mostly in the, uh, the Eastern churches, the Orthodox churches. They'll do a triple immersion, they call it. And in an immersion baptism, there's often a baptismal font, like a big giant pool kind of thing, which will be filled with water. And then the baptizer and the baptizee get into that water together and perform the ceremony. And sometimes in immersion baptisms, the whole church will gather on the shore of like a river or the ocean or a lake or some other body of water while the baptizer performs the ceremony in the water just offshore. Okay. So, this is the Trinitarian formula. You find this at the end of Matthew's gospel in the Great Commission in chapter 28. Jesus tells everybody, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, keeping with that tradition in the scripture, when you baptize somebody, we say, I baptize you in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, along with, depending on the tradition, they'll either ask you questions or you'll recite some pledge or affirmation of certain theology and doctrine and things like that. So, the second way that typically churches will do baptism is by effusion, which just means pouring, right? And the initiate will be held over, if it's a child, held over a basin, or if it's an adult, they will sit them inside of basin, and the priest will pour holy water on their head while reciting the Trinitarian formula. And the last one is aspersion, which is just means sprinkling. And typically when this happens, all the, the converts and, or initiates are gathered together while the priest uh, sprinkles the group with holy water using a special instrument called an aspergillum. Okay? This is what an aspergillum looks like. It's important to note that many of the denominations who practice aspersion typically don't isolate that act to a single incident. So, like Baptists, for example— when you become a Christian, you profess faith, they'll baptize you one time. You never get baptized again, right? Or like myself, I was baptized Episcopal as a child, and I have the papers to prove it. This is my baptism certificate from December 6th, 1987. I was born April 11th, 1987, so I was very, very small. Hopefully, that sticks, and I don't have to do that again. No, I do. I met, uh, funnily enough, I met uh, Father Kirk, uh, who's the the priest at the Episcopal Church in Spanish Springs. And I was like, I was like, I was baptized Episcopal. I've got my papers and stuff. And just so you know, I fully blame the Episcopal Church for planting the seed of progressive liberal Christianity deep in my heart that came to fruition as a 35-year-old man. He And he said, well, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> anyway, so aspersion, uh, right? That's an aspergillum. It's uh, made of like organic or metallic material. You dip it in holy water and then you kind of fling it into the air and try to hit people with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> aspersion, not isolated to a single incident, like I said, um, it's done typically as a liturgical act. So, the priest will walk up and down the aisle with this little basin of holy water and just kind of, you know, throw it around the room. The aspergillum, while effective, is not quite effective as this guy. Father Frank can cleanse your soul from 50 feet away. So, what are some... What are some differing views on baptism? I don't know if his name's Frank, but he looked like a Frank to me. 
We won't get into the views too deeply because that could be literally a whole seminary class of like why the different views believe that they do. But I just thought it'd be helpful for us to know some of the general ideas that are out there around baptism. But what's important to remember is that all the views are very reasonable deductions based on the passages of the Bible that inform them. And if you want more information on the specific passages and the specific sort of arguments behind them, come talk to me after and I can get you some resources as far as that, if that interests you. So, the first philosophy around baptism that we'll talk about is paedo-baptism, which just means the baptism of infants and children. And there's essentially two types of thought around that. One is the regenerative act, meaning like when I baptize a child, what that does spiritually is it plants a seed of faith that hopefully will come to fruition as they grow and, and realize for themselves that this is something that I believe. This is like, uh, I think Lutheran's and a couple of other uh, Protestant denominations do this. And then the covenantal baptism is essentially the New Testament version of what the Old Testament had as circumcision. So, circumcision was the sign that you were in the people in the family of God, and then in Jesus's new covenant in the church, the sign is now being baptized, okay? That's the idea behind those two. The next one is credo-baptism, okay? This is baptism of, of adults upon profession of belief. So, firstly, symbolic. There's philosophy out there that baptism is a symbol of us aligning ourselves with Jesus and aligning ourselves with his death. That's pretty common among a lot of Protestant churches, especially in non-denominational evangelicalism. It's the most common thinking that the baptism water is not magical, it doesn't do anything to you, it's just a symbol of us proclaiming our faith and pledging allegiance to living the way of Jesus. And then there's the efficacious view, which is that baptism is actually a mechanism by which your sins are forgiven, which there's a few verses that could support that kind of thinking. It's totally a reasonable deduction, but it's one of those things that it's like certain denominations think this way and certain ones don't, but that's something to just be aware of. And then the last one is spiritual baptism, which just means not with water and not administered by the church or by any kind of authority in the church. So, one of them is the second baptism of the Spirit. This is something that Pentecostals and charismatic Christians typically would align with some of the time. And so, essentially, the way this would work in their mind is that after conversion, you have a special experience where God fills you with His Spirit, similar to how the apostles experienced the filling of the Spirit at Pentecost, right? So, Jesus goes and finds these people and they start following him. That's their conversion experience. And then later, they have a special experience of the Spirit coming down, tongues of fire, start speaking in tongues, all that stuff, right? Last one, indwelling of the Holy Spirit that upon profession of faith, a, the Holy Spirit merges with a person's soul or consciousness. In the Bible, this replaces John the Baptist's baptism of water for repentance with Jesus's baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, which is an interesting statement, which we won't get too far into, but essentially what it is, is that when you start to believe in Jesus, that the Spirit comes into you and the Holy Spirit's fire starts to change and sanctify you and make you more into the image of Christ. So, that's that view. Okay, that's the views. Let's talk about where it comes from in the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, in particular, water represented chaos and uncertainty and danger. So, for example, in the opening kind of statements of the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, the poet depicts God as this spirit that's hovering over the waters. You can see 
up there in verse 1. Now, the phrase just before it describes the earth and the waters as formless and empty and shrouded in darkness, right? And so, the poet's painting this picture of the uncreated, disordered world, right? So, it's this complete disordered chaos that needs to be formed into an ordered space for life to exist, which is the rest of the creation narrative is God separating the water from the water and separating the land from the water and separating the animals in the air from the animals on the earth and the animals in the ocean. It's this separating and ordering all the things that are here, right? That's the creation narrative. So, let's take a look at another passage like this. Uh, later in Genesis, Genesis chapter 7, it says, The waters rose and covered the mountains, and every living thing that moved on the land perished. And everything on the dry land had the breath of life, and its nostrils died. And every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. And uh, the people, the animals, the creatures moved along the ground, and the birds were wiped from the earth, and only Noah's left, and those with him in the ark. Yikes! So... So hardcore. But you can see when you look at these two passages next to each other that the flood story, the flood water, you know, downpour is an inversion of the creation story, right? In creation, you have this unformed, totally chaotic planet where life cannot exist, and then God orders it. And then in the flood narrative, you have God bringing disorder back to the planet, right? So the flood waters rise and all of a sudden, it's no longer habitable for humans anymore, except for if you're on an ark. The waters represent this coming of chaos and disintegration of all life. So, it's kind of like the rule of first mention. You know, early in the scriptures, we have this story that pops up, and it sets a precedence that continues on through all the other, like, water icons. The idea is that God provides safe passage through the waters of chaos and death. And we see it again in the story of Exodus, which really briefly, that story is when God liberates the Jewish people from slavery to Egypt, right? That's the Exodus. And during their escape, this is part of the story where God parts the Red Sea and the Jews cross on dry land to safety. So, there's this theme of God providing safe passage through the waters of chaos, and it's a constant from basically the first pages of the Bible. So, some of the inspiration for water baptism comes from this very concept that God delivers us through the waters of chaos. So, take a look at Romans chapter 6, for example. The Apostle Paul talks about baptism being a symbol for death, right? He says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, going to the next section here, you can see the deliverance that God provides through the waters of chaos, the waters of death. He says, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, you see the connection. It's a symbol, right? It's a representation of passage through death into resurrection. So, that's a lot. It's a lot to cover. But I'd love to hear kind of what you're thinking. How is that sitting with you? You know, any questions about baptism, the history, where it came from, what it means, anything like that. So, water in baptism represents the chaos, passing through the chaos, right? Passing through chaos, uncertainty, and destruction. And what is more uncertain than death, right? It's certainly uncertain. We know what happens. We have no idea what happens afterwards, right? And what's more chaotic than the complete decay of your mortal form, you know, or 
or more destructive than like the relentless reminder that, you know, every second, every moment of the inevitability of your complete and total disintegration, right? That is, that's freaky. (laughs) And the waters of baptism represent the ultimate passage through the ultimate chaos. So, one of the ways that I've really enjoyed visualizing this is, uh, you know, you know, death is one of those things that we know absolutely nothing about empirically. You know, you have people who have anecdotal stories and when they have near-death experiences and things like that. But as far as anyone we can talk to who's like been there and come back, I can only think of one person, <laughs> but I can't talk to him. I can't perform tests on his you know, is a physical form to figure out what happened to him, you know? So, there's no way to know what's on the other side of the death experience, which reminds me a lot of a black hole. So, if you're familiar with the concept, I'm sure most of us are at this point, but Albert Einstein predicted with general relativity, mathematically speaking, that black holes were a statistical inevitability. The idea is that if the universe is infinite, then there has to be some place in the universe where matter gets so dense that space and time kind of collapses in on itself. Now, we know that there's tons of black holes all over the place, For example, this one's Sagittarius A, and it's the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. When you look at a black hole like this, or I'll use this one as an artist rendition. I think this is from Interstellar, which is my favorite movie of all time. So, I encourage you to go watch that. Um, When you look at a black hole, you see a large black sphere encircled with hot, glowing cosmic stuff, you know? And that black sphere is what astronomers call the event horizon. That's not solid, That black sphere is not a solid thing with a surface. It's not the supermass that the astronomers talk about that they think lies at the heart of the black hole itself. The black sphere is just the boundary line. It's the maximum distance from the black hole's heart where gravity is still strong enough to trap the light. So, the black sphere is not a physical thing. It's the observable effect on physical things that the supermass in the middle has. So, since light can't escape the gravity of the supermass, we have no way of knowing what happens once you cross that event horizon. For all we know, the the laws of physics may completely unravel, and some astronomers are working on, you know, mathematics right now with a theory that suggests that there might be entire universes inside of black holes. And I'm not talking like portals to another universe, I'm talking like micro-universes. It's freaking crazy. I highly recommend looking into it if that stuff interests you. But the point is, we'll never know what's going on ourselves. And once someone goes in, there's no way for them to come out and turn around and tell us what they've discovered. And this is why this reminds me of the whole baptism thing. So, we'll bring it full circle, is I think this is really analogous to death. Let's say, just, you know, hypothetically speaking, that you could physically touch the supermass at the center of a black hole, right? But if you want to touch it, you still have to get close enough to reach it, which means crossing the event horizon, which means no going back. You have to be really, really sure that you don't want to come back, or you have to believe that the thing on the other side is so good, so amazing, so worth seeing for yourself that you simply must go. You can't not. And I think this helps to illustrate the kind of dichotomous yet inseparable nature of life and death. You know, Well, we think of death as the absence of life, right? The end of life, the destruction of the living thing. But what if death is just the event horizon around God? You know, it's this abyssal darkness that that shrouds God in secrecy and mystery. You know, in Exodus chapter 33, God has this line. He says, you can't see my face and live. No one has seen my face and lived. 
And I think this is kind of the same thing. You know, it's not like the event of seeing God kills a person necessarily. It's just that you have to cross the death horizon in order to get close enough to touch him. There's just no other way. And so, as this relates to baptism, now imagining that we can't come back from the event horizon of a black hole, like what if you could? What if one astronaut was able to peek in and tell us what they found? Like that would change everything about our perception of reality, science, existence, the self, you know, metaphysics, physics, all of it would would be updated by what we would learn inside of one of those things. But we don't know because it's never happened. But what if someone could cross the death horizon, take a look around and tell us what they found out, right? That's the role that Jesus plays to us. That's what he did. When he was crucified and died and buried, he crossed the death horizon for three days, which who knows how long that actually is in the beyond the horizon, right? He might've been in there for an eternity for what we know, but he returns to us with a message to let us know that death is not the end, that the supermassive core if you will, that lies in the heart of darkness is actually love. And then he gives us the great and honorable mission, right? The, to go to the ends of the earth and demonstrate and teach people the way of Jesus and to baptize them. And so, after kind of plotting through this imaginative scenario, I think it gives us some more clarity of the role that baptism plays in our lives, just as an individual. There's this, uh, this Death Cab song, Death Cab for Cuties, one of my favorite bands, And the chorus goes, um, if heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied and illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs, if there's no one beside you when your soul embarks, then I will follow you into the dark. And I think in this way, baptism is a way of saying, I accept my inevitable death and I embrace uncertainty And I release my expectations about what the other side will be like or what I think it should be like. And while I love this life and these people and this place, I believe that beyond the event horizon lies the heart of God. And while the plunge into that darkness is completely disorienting and and terrifying, I trust that when I reach the heart of God, I'm just going to splash down into the ocean of grace and the source of life and and love. And I trust that God will catch me. So, baptism is this song that we sing back to God saying, I don't know what's on the other side, but I will follow you into the dark. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.